<laughs> ah, this is working. How's everyone doing today? Ah, looked into the light. Literally. I recently had to have a cataract surgery in my right eye, and um, of course I was a little shocked. I, th I thought I had a good 20 years before I would face cataract surgery, and uh, so did the doctor. She goes, well, you're about the youngest person ever. I'm like, oh, well, that's terrific, thanks. So I really don't want to look in that light. This eye has got a new lens in it now. So anyway, if I'm looking a little confused, it's I'm still kind of blurry in my vision. Or I'm just confused. <laughs> All right, this is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, I was a history, major, history and religion major in my undergrad work, and I love that quote. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And I tell my students that all the time. Like, uh, if you were going to Japan, you would read a lot about how Japanese people are and what kind of things you might not say or do. You don't want to offend people in another cult culture, that sort of thing. If you time traveled, you'd have to go through the same kind of a process. You could easily offend people. You wouldn't know what they were talking about. Um, even though you might be in the past in England, like we often see movies about, those people didn't speak a language that we would understand. Well, what? Wegardena in Gargum. That would have been something might, someone might have said to you in Old English. And if you traveled back in that time, that's what you would hear. It would take a while to figure out that like yard is yard. And these, these became our words, but it takes a while to hear it. So point being that we tend to read Galatians and Hebrews backwards, which is to read them as documents establishing what became doctrine in the Christian church, instead of reading them as the radical documents that they were at the time. And if you understand how radical they were, then you understand why Paul was not a popular guy. I also hear people, many times in my life, I had friends of mine, decided they were going to begin a, a New Testament church, a quote, New Testament church. There was a huge movement for that in the 70s and 80s, as you probably know. A lot of people left traditional churches and they started the big super churches, etc. And they would always swear, we're going we're to do everything just like the other church. And I'm like, oh, so you're going you're gonna to put everything in common and you're going to argue a lot. Because <laughs> that's pretty much what the early church was about. They didn't know, they didn't understand what had happened. And it took them quite a while to figure it out. Some people say they figured it out. Some people said they made it up. But in any case, Christ had come, but they didn't really know what that meant. So they argued about things for hundreds of years, like was he fully God and fully human? Is there such a thing as a trinity? All those things were argued about. And the people that lost, of course, lost, and the winners are left. So what I want to try to do is to be fair, to be a little more fair to the audience that, the, that these speakers were speaking to. If you understand what Paul is doing, he's speaking within a Pharisaic tradition, he's educated as a Pharisee, but he's doing a radical reinterpretation of what Pharisees believe. Therefore, what a lot of Christians take is like the ordinary or the normal way to look at it. I want, to see, want us to see today that it's not the normal way to look at it, it's a radically different way to look at it, and that he was rebelling and pushing against his own traditions by reading the scriptures this way. We also have to remember that Paul doesn't ever quote, he quotes Jesus very seldom, and only in kind of official doctrinary statements and things. You'd think he would quote him more, but he didn't have the gospels, the gospels hadn't been written. So, Keeping all those things in mind. Now, Paul didn't write Hebrews. Nobody really believes anymore that Paul wrote Hebrews. And the King James Bible is probably the last time you'll see it's a letter of Paul. But it's not. It's, it's not stylistically like it. It's not anything like Paul's theology. There's no way he wrote it. But somebody wrote it, and it was highly influential, and it made it into the New Testament, into the canon, where other things didn't. All right, so, what, so for some context, I want to look at what Jesus says about the law, and this isn't the only place he says it, but he pr probably says more about it here than he does in elsewhere. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay, if you read that carefully, in a lot of ways it doesn't make any sense. In a lot of ways he's saying, it's gonna stand forever, and then he says, then it's, and I'm not abolishing it, I'm fulfilling it, but it's not clear, is he fulfilling it? Or is it fulfilled in the end of time? Is, it, is he talking about the fulfillment of the prophecies, the scriptures, over the time? And so the early church didn't know what to do with this either. If you look to see, he almost says one thing and then another, which is kind of paradoxical. Right, he says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Then he says, the law won't pass away, not a single letter, until everything is accomplished. Well, the confusion is, when is everything accomplished? You could read that as, well, everything isn't accomplished till you know, the fat lady sings, as they say, till the whole thing is over, right? So everything wouldn't be accomplished until the end of history. On, another, on the other hand, is everything accomplished in the crucifixion? Is that what he's referring to? And of course, Jesus often said things that were mysterious like that. That's part of the way that he spoke. But unfortunately, this left the early church trying to figure out what the heck that meant. All right, I also wanted to point out that Rabbi Hillel, there were two uh, schools of Judaism um, within the Pharisaic movement. And Rabbi Hillel was probably the most popular one, and he's the one that won, so we know more about him. <laughs> Um, he said this, that which is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary, go and study it. That is very similar to what Jesus says. And a lot of people don't realize, unless you read Rabbi Hillel, that Jesus speaks very much in the tradition of Rabbi Hillel. Um, so, we also have to deal with the fact that Jesus, being in the tradition of Rabbi Hillel, speaking within that tradition, being called Rabbi, Rabbi that he's speaking like a Pharisee. Now, some people will get upset and say, well, he's never, he's never says that he's a Pharisee. But if you look at the way Jesus teaches, it's a very common way of teaching for Pharisees. For instance, Sadducees would never say, but I say to you. Pharisees would say, this is what the law says, do that. Yes, did I say that wrong? The Sadducees would have said, this is what the law said, no question, do that. The Pharisees were, were more like, constitutional uh, lawyers and that it has to be reinterpreted to the present time. So a Pharisee would say, but I say to you, and nobody's gonna throw a rock at a Pharisee for saying that. Am I making any sense? So when Jesus does that, he's not unique in that sense. He's unique in that the claims that Christianity makes about him, but he's not unique as a teacher, a Pharisee tradition, tradition teacher, to say, this is what the scripture says. This is my interpretation of that. So this is what I say to you. Remember what he says about divorce. He says, Moses told you you get divorced because of your hardness of heart, but I say to you. So he's updating the scriptures. He's reinterpreting them in the present time. So he teaches very much in a rabbinic style. He also uses the rabbinic style <coughs> codified by Hillel of, of what's called the Kawahomer, or called, called Vahomer, depends on whether you pronounce the W as a H or a V. But the, the call of a homer is um, how much more? If this, then this. So he says, if God feeds the birds, how much more will he feed you? Or if an evil judge will do what's right, how much more? Okay, so he argues very much within that tradition. Paul himself is educated as a Pharisee as well. All right, everybody knows what an epistle is, right? It's the Greek epistole, which as a smart aleck, student of Greek, I said, was a small Spanish revolver. <laughs> it does sound like it should be. <laughs> All right, these were common ways of writing letters. There's still common ways of writing letters today. You make salutation. If you write emails, I always feel funny just doing an email where I don't say anything like, I hope your family's doing well, or I hope you're doing well, or I hope the semester's going well, some sort of greeting. Um, then that would be followed by a blessing which we don't do as much today because, you know, we have a different kind of audience. Um, 
So they're all called epistles simply because that's the Greek word for letters. So we call them epistles, but we're just calling them what? Letters. Just like the Bible means the book. All right. So the letter to the Galatians, sometimes called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty, um, and I see it kind of as Romans for dummies. It's, it's <laughs> Romans spells everything out. If you want to get the whole thing, get Romans and read all the way through that because Paul is explaining his theology to the Roman church. Again, though, he's explaining it because his theology is different from a lot of the other apostles' teachings. Okay, It's not like he is in collusion with these He's at odds, and, he, and if you look at the book of Acts and in his letters, he talks about that he is at odds at times with Peter and some of the other apostles on some of these things. They weren't decided. Um, but the Magna Carta in the sense that this is the book that changed Martin Luther's perspective on things. Faith alone is, is enough for salvation and led him to put up the 95 Theses, etc. All right, so what we know about this is Judaizing Christians I love how we just make up words for things, like Judaizers. You can tell this is a name made up by somebody who doesn't like them. You know what I'm saying? Judaizers. But the Judaizers didn't call themselves Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians. And they logically, I think, believed that if you didn't follow the Jewish laws, if you didn't become a Jew, then you couldn't become a Christian because they didn't see Christianity as a new religion. They saw it as a reformation of Judaism. And there's little to indicate that Jesus saw it as anything different than a reformation of Judaism. He spoke to Jews. He spoke as a Jew. He taught in Jewish methods. He didn't have too many dealings with Gentiles in his life on earth. So there was much, most indication that it was a Jewish reform movement. All right. So the Judaizers <laughs> were just Jewish Christians who believed that Christians had to follow Jewish law. That makes some sense. From when we read it backwards, we're like, why would you do that? But if you're reading it in that time, doesn't it make sense? Jesus was a Jew. He came to speak to Jews. It was, everything was based in Hebrew scriptures. It wasn't based in uh, you know, documents from Greece and Rome or other mythologies. It was based in Jewish scriptures. So they should keep the commandments, obey dietary laws, the cleanliness restrictions, keep holidays and customs. And as you see in Acts, some of the Gentile converts are circumcised. That's not a lovely thing to happen when you're an adult. Yes? Okay, I know what Chaldean means historically. I don't know of that use of the term. So somebody else can help me out on that. But Chaldean was originally a Babylonian. I don't know how it would get to be. A, maybe it did. I don't know. I don't remember that. Or if I learned it, I was asleep that day during class. I don't remember that term. I don't think they had a term at first. They were just Christians. Like today we'll say they're Gnostic Christians or whatever, another sect of Christianity. And, but they didn't call themselves Gnostics. They called themselves Christians. And the Jewish Christians didn't call themselves Jewish Christians. They called themselves Christians. If they called themselves that, at first they didn't call themselves Christians. It was actually a, a name that was put on them by outsiders. It means little Christ. And other people said, you think you're a little Christ. Right. We just make this stuff up. But, well, that's what kills me when we'll talk about people from history, like the Celtic peoples. There were no Celtic peoples. They didn't call themselves the Celtic people. They didn't know that word. We called them that later. And they didn't even know each other. <laughs> so the Scots and the Irish and all that, we call them Celtic, but... Or they're the Celtics now, and the, I can't even pronounce it right on the basketball team. All right, so anyway. In the letter... Paul is so concerned with the Judaizing Christians that he skips his salutation. He just jumps right in. He defends his authority and his teaching. All you have to do is think, why is someone defending your, his authority? It's been challenged. But also, that tells you something. We tend to see Paul as this great figure of Christianity, but at the time, he was just one of, main, of many voices 
vying for attention, and he didn't always win. And unfortunately, we don't know how people responded even to these letters, do we? We know he sent it. We don't know if the Galatians said, yes, Paul, you're right, we'll side with you, or whether they just went and became Judaizing Christians. Who knows? Then he describes his, justi- his doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then at the end, he talks about practical applications. Because the dangerous thing about justification by faith alone is the free ride kind of feel to it, right? Someone else has paid the price, and you can go ahead. And if someone learns that, sometimes they're not so grateful. Yes, problem solved. I'm saved. I can do anything I want. That was the other group other than Judaizers. They were the the people who said, you can do anything you want because the body is the body, and you can do anything you want to with the body. Your soul is saved. Right? There are still people, I think, kind of live like that. They may not make it a philosophy. Yeah. Well, there you go. All right, so Paul is faced with these crazy extremes, right? <laughs> Judaizing Christians say you've got to obey all the laws, all the rules, and there are 613 of them from the Hebrew Scriptures. And another group saying you don't have to do anything. You're free to do whatever. And he has to battle both of those things. All right, what I wanted to try to look at, though, is we tend to characterize Pharisees and the legal tradition the way Jesus characterizes it in his condemnation of the Pharisees, the whitewashed tombs approach. You guys keep all the rituals, but you don't understand what you're doing. It needs to be about the heart. But what we don't understand is that he is speaking to specific groups of Pharisees, not all Pharisees. He's not saying you're all a bunch of legalists and morons. He's talking to a particular group, and he's in a discussion with them. And he talks about that Pharisees, of course, what is the temptation of Pharisees? That if if somehow your relationship to God is through the laws, then you start thinking, well, I keep the law better than you. You start getting real picky about that and judgmental of other people who don't keep the laws and separating yourselves. They were separatists. So there were things to criticize them for, but he didn't really mean that he he was criticizing their whole point of view. In fact, it makes sense that what he's telling them is follow out your own point of view rather than you're in the wrong point of view. So let's take a look. This is things that Pharisees actually believed where they agreed with Jesus. And there are places where they don't fight with him and struggle with him for these reasons. Pharisees believed the guardianship of the law was proof that they were God's chosen people and the Messiah would come. They believed that the Messiah would be an earthly king. This does cause problems with Jesus. A son of David whom God would raise up. He would establish an earthly kingdom, freeing them from Roman rule. They believed in heaven and hell and the resurrection of believers. Resurrection only of believers, of Jews. They also believed that in order to remain in favor with God, keeping the Torah was essential. Unlike the Sadducees, they believed the scriptures were open to interpretation and could be updated to fit the current historical context. So they develop an oral tradition that goes along with the Bible that becomes just as important as the Bible itself. All right, they were the largest sect of Judaism. Um, Basically, the poor and the middle class were, uh, if there was such a thing as middle class, but the merchant class um, were just about everybody was Pharisees. You had to be in some sort of a group. And so the bulk of the population would have been Pharisees. Sadducees were the well-off, the aristocrats, the people of power, uh, and the people who actually had control of the temple. All right. Paul was raised as a Pharisee. Their religion centered around the law of Moses, and it was legalistic in nature. Not legalistic in a negative sense necessarily, but just careful to follow laws in nature. Josephus had this to say concerning the Pharisees of whom he was a member. The Pharisees are those who are esteemed most skillful in the exact explication of their laws. All right, so the Pharisees in their zeal for keeping the law of Moses built a set of rabbinic rules to build a hedge and protect the sacred laws of Moses. Remember, Jesus does something very similar to this when he says something about adultery, right? And lusting after someone. He says, even if you do it in your heart, right, you've done it. That's, very, that's a very Pharisaic way of looking at it. In order to keep from breaking a rule, then I put the boundary out even further. 
like when you tell your kids, well, don't even think about asking me that question. <laughs> don't even think about smoking. <laughs> you know, it's like they're not even getting to the, or my kids always tell me, they go, you never, ever said if you go to college. You always said when you go to college. So there wasn't any, there was just a don't even think about it. So I'm being very pharisaical there. When you go to college is a very Pharisee way of looking at it, that I'm going to keep you from breaking the rule by just acknowledging that there's no way you're ever going to break the rule. I used to tell my son after he'd do something stupid, I'd say, you're not doing that again, are you? <laughs> there you go. I'm being a Pharisee. All right. To Paul, it was known as the oral Torah, traditional sayings. It eventually became the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Gomorrah. You've probably heard of those. Okay. The whole belief that you follow the, the laws is called halakha. And, but the word literally means the path that one walks. This was the way that they looked at it. Paul is going to reinterpret it completely differently than this. But they just look at it, looked at it like this. What marks you as a Jew? Keeping the laws. You keep the festivals and the rituals, and that's how people know you're a Jew. That's how you know you're a Jew. And they see it as um, kind of a parent relationship. How do, how do you identify yourself as a good child? By doing what your parents tell you to do, and they looked at it that way. So they didn't look at it as, um, well, I'll show you. This is a comment from a, a rabbi from the present day, and he's trying to explain halakha, and he's very much in the tradition of the Pharisees. At the heart of the halakha, is the unchangeable 613 mitzvah that God gave to Jewish people in the Torah. So 613 rules. When properly observed, halakha increases the spirituality in a person's life because it, it turns the most trivial mundane acts such as eating and getting dressed into acts of religious significance. Keep kosher, light candle, Shabbat candles, pray after meals, once or twice a day. When you do these things, you are constantly reminded of your relationship with the divine. And it becomes an integral part of your entire existence. Unless you understand that that's how most Jewish people and Pharisees believed the law worked, then you don't understand why they were so angry at Paul. Am I making any sense here? They look at it as, this isn't about, he switches the metaphor. It's a me they're, switching, they're using a parent metaphor and the parent has given these guidelines as, as a nicety, right? These are to help you live your life. The way you want your children to understand the rules that you lay down for them, right? This is for you. This is for your good. If you follow these, it will help you live your life and you will mark yourself as a child of mine. They are looking at it from that metaphor. Paul's looking at it, the metaphor is that God is holy and separate and we couldn't please God if we wanted to. So the laws are only frustrating. 613 of them, it's ridiculous. You can't follow them all. And he takes a whole different view. But unless you understand this, then you can't understand why Judaism did not embrace Christianity. Like they, they didn't buy what Paul was saying about the law. To put it more clearly, this is what the modern rabbi says. It's a very shallow and meaningless kind of love if you aren't willing to do something inconvenient for the one you love. You, notice how he uses a Kawahoma right here. How much more should we be willing to perform some occasionally inconvenient tasks that were set before us by our creator who assigned us these tasks for our own good? This was more the common view of what the law was about. Now, some people got legalistic. Some people got bent out of shape over this. But at the same time, this was the basic motivation. The Kawahoma rule established by Hillel says that what applies in a less important case will certainly apply in a more important case. Kawahomer argument is often better known. It's always signaled by the phrase, how much more? All right, now, I think looking at that, then you can see how radical Paul's language is here. For I through the law died to the law that I might live unto God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The law was added because of transgressions until the coming of Christ. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, he's using a metaphor of growing up in a different way. The idea is 
a parent is trying to control the children. They're out of control. So as we all know, well, okay, take this for instance. My grade school teachers were, you know, when we went to lunch, it was like, everybody, up against the wall. Literally, we had to get up against the wall. We had to stand in line. Nobody touches. Couldn't touch anybody. And yet, I would see teachers who were new, yes, first there. They didn't have that approach, right? The teachers who were first there would be like, okay, what kinds of touching are there? Are there good touching and there's bad touching, right? Okay, so what's an example of good touching? They go like, hugging, yes, hugging is good. Kissing, yes, kissing is good. What's an example of bad touching? Hitting, okay, you all see the differences, right? So that's what that teacher is trying to do. And then sooner or later, you have one of the kids just wailing on the other kid, saying he's hugging him. <laughs> I'm just hugging him. And then you turn into the monster that's everybody against the wall, nobody touches. Yes? So it's kind of that thing that God reveals himself to Abraham in this more or less kind of vague way. And then it doesn't take, right? Abraham and some others follow him, but for the most part, people don't get what's going on. And so then he reveals some rules. We've got to establish some rules. And so then comes the revelation of the rules. Now, to Judaism, that's it, right? We had this vague idea, and then the rules make it all clear what's supposed to happen. Over. Paul is saying step three is the one that you're hoping for with your children, isn't it? They don't obey, okay. They, they talk about, uh, what is it, Colbert's stages of moral development. That um, Stage four is, all right, stage two is something like you're good because you're afraid to be bad. Yes, that's a real low level. Like, so why don't I do things my parents don't want me to do? Because I'm just terrified they'll be yell at me or whatever they do. And then at little higher levels, you actually accept the rules and the laws as making some sense and you obey them because they're rules and laws. A higher level than that is to understand that the rules and the laws are one thing, but sometimes we have to figure out which rule, which law applies, right? You can't be legalistic, so it's a movement beyond legalistic. So if you look at it this, this way, Paul is saying the same thing. There's kind of a thing where you obey God just because you're afraid not to, yes? Then you have the rules and the laws and the regulations, okay, so, and you begin to understand, okay, this is what's happening. And it makes the whole testament like, make a lot more sense in terms of, you know, the angry God thing and people doing things wrong and bam, they get all this punishment. And I don't think they always understood what was going on. So the laws make it clear. Paul is saying step three is the revelation of Christ, right? And that it doesn't abolish the laws, as Jesus says, but it puts them in a different context. So now it's not about obeying laws, it's seeing the laws in this larger context of love one another and living your life differently because you've been saved through the act of Jesus. All right, so he takes what, this is what's radical about what he's doing. He's taking what is normally a Jewish advantage. Jews would be proud, yes? What marks us as Jews is we have this relationship with God. How do you know you have a relationship with God? He gave us these rules. See? And Paul's saying, he gave you the rules so that you'd know what idiots you were. <laughs> that's a radical reinterpretation, right? If you look at all these rules and see, so he says, as he says in Romans, all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, but Jews have a special knowledge of it, so they're more accountable. This is, this is reading badly for Jews, isn't it? We were, weren't given the, we were given the law to show us that we couldn't obey it, and all we do is we know that we're more sinful. He does lay out that in, in theolo theologically, he says everybody knows right from wrong. Gentiles know, everybody knows, has a sense of right and wrong if they live on this planet. He says God planted that in us. And so different cultures may establish different things as right and wrong, but most of them agree on some pretty basic things. And um, therefore you can tell God has revealed himself to all people. But in specific, he revealed himself in detail to the Jews. But Paul is taking that as not a special privilege. It's almost a curse. 
So the, lo the laws no, are no longer guidelines based on Jewish relationship to God, but a bar of judgment. You have to see that Paul is doing that to understand why he's so radical. All right. Even more radical. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If the church would have listened to that verse, they'd have been out there abolishing slavery and putting up equal rights for women in the first century AD. Yes, that's what Paul says. And this is why it's called the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. Unfortunately, Paul backs off due to pressures from culture and other places in the letters. We also have to understand these are letters. They weren't considered scripture at the time. So this is written by Paul. Now, the way of looking backwards at it is they say he was inspired by God. On the other hand, you have to look at these are personal beliefs of him. He's not, he is one of the few people going down this road and explaining Christianity this way. So these are letters. And until they became scripture, then readers would have gone, okay, this is where Paul is talking, and this is where, you know, this is the authority of the church. And Paul even says in his letters, this is me. He has three levels. This is what Christ says. Psh, nobody can doubt that. That's set. This is accepted doctrine, which he leaves as a place where that can still be debated, but it's pretty solid. And then he has what I believe. And a lot of things he says about women are in the what I believe sec section, but when you elevate something to the level of scripture, then all those distinctions get ignored. All right, so Paul understands clearly how radical Christianity is. If there's no slave free, male or female, God looks at everybody as one. This is amazing. I almost wish it was the only thing he said in this letter. <laughs> wow. It would have changed the world. I think it's interesting that a writer that I read said that no religion came up with the ideas of eradicating slavery. None of them came up with the idea of eradicating slavery or equal rights for women or equal rights for all people. He said it took a bunch of Enlightenment scholars with a new deistic idea of God, the clockmaker, to come up with that. Sort of pseudo-Christian influenced but it took, what, 1,800 years before anybody even thought of it? He said, that's really sad, isn't it? Buddhism doesn't acknowledge male or female differences or whatever, but it didn't make a difference in the culture that much. Paul offers a radical perspective. Christians are now officially Jews. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is radical. You have to understand how radical that was at the time and how much that would tick off Jewish Christians. They're the ones in the prodigal son story. I've been here all along. <laughs> I've been the obedient son. What are you doing giving all this stuff to this Gentile? Right? And we tend to, of course, Jesus is condemning their behavior or saying that he has the right to ignore that. On the other hand, I think most of us sympathize with that, don't we? And the Jewish people felt like that, like we got the message first, and you're saying that they can just come and join? No circumcision, no anything? They're just Jews? This is crazy to their estimation. He also backs off on his statements. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. This is in Corinthians. For the one who was a slave when he is called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when he is called is Christ's slave. So you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, again, it was, it's kind of like that first thing I read from Jesus where he's going back and forth here a little bit. It's hard to reconcile everything he's saying with other things that he's saying right in this passage. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were called when God called them. What's happened is early Christians pick up on this and they begin to, a, a minor women's rights movement begins to happen. Women, there's a woman apostle, there are women teachers. 
women moving into authority. Paul respects them. He talks about them. He mentions them in his letters. He gives regards to them. So women had leadership roles in the early church. This is going to disappear over time because this passage is going to stand out more than the other. What always stands out? The one that makes you happier in your culture or the one that resists your culture? <laughs> Let your women keep silence in churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. I'm like, wait a second, Paul, didn't you tell us that we're not under the law? What's he just say? Like, which one's going to be there, Paul? Well, he hadn't made up his mind. A lot of people say they're contradictions in the Bible. Here's a better way to look at it, I think. When someone contradicts themselves, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means that they're not fully placed in either place. Am I making any sense? I recently had a, um, a former student of mine came by my office and told me she was pregnant. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me. Don't read that wrong. But she <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that sounded funny. <laughs> no, she came, well, you know, I, students find me as like uh, a guy, a mentor or whatever, and, and yeah, it was pretty disappointing because I've been trying to just get her through with her program, get her out of college, and now she's got this to do with, and so she talked about whether or not to have an abortion, and I was trying to, like, I didn't want to say anything, but she said something that is so common among most people. She said, I believe that women ought to have legal choice, but I don't think it's right for me. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not contradictory. That's just where she is. Does that make sense? You could see it as contradictory, or you could say, no, she's just trying to deal with reality. I don't want choice taken away, but I don't think, every, I think we should try to get people to not make the choice rather than take it away. All right. So, what does that have to do with anything? I think that Paul is contradicting himself in a sense, in another sense, that's just he's trying to both deal with what is actually metaphysically true, right? Salvation through Christ, no male or female, etc., and the fact that he doesn't want insurrection going on. That if Christianity becomes known for liberation of women and slaves, it's gonna become an anti-slavery, uh, pro-women movement rather than a Christian movement. Peter takes the same tack. He says, you know, we need to obey the authorities. I'm disappointed because when I read Christianity, I'm like, this is radical. This could have changed the world. This could have changed the way everything was done. And, but, the, but Peter and Paul both, when they faced the situations, got conservative on us and put in these other rules. And it would be just a matter of minor rules, but they weren't. They were huge. This led to women's oppression by the church for centuries. Okay, the irony is, look at the basic purpose of the letter. For freedom, Christ has set us free, stand fast therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, unless, of course, you're slaves. He can't quite get out of that. And he's a person in his time. I mean, it makes sense. Slavery was a part of their culture. It was a natural part of their culture. They, it was hard for them to see that. It was natural in their culture for women to be oppressed and to kept apart and sit in the back of the church or the synagogue, or to not be in there at all. Women were not in the rooms when the Torah was taught. All right, isn't that cool? <laughs> all right, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. All right, so his main message was battling both of those things. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian, in fact, a Christian, as a Christian, you inherit the promise of Abraham. And the other is, don't use your freedom as a license to do everything wrong, but use it to do good things. Be grateful. As, again, your children, you're hoping they're going to do. So, summary, in Galatians, Paul reinterprets the role of the Hebrew Bible. It's the book of the law. Now, this mistake already happened when they translated the Bible into, the Hebrew Bible into Greek about the time of, in the 300s or so, um, the Middle East, everyone spoke Greek after Alexander. That's the way he did things. And it was the language of power, and so everyone knew Greek. Um, Jesus probably knew Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic kind of as the street language, and then 
but they also knew and used Greek. The more educated you were, the more you knew. And then Latin gets added to that later on with um, Rome. So the Bible, the, the Jewish people couldn't read their own Bible, and they had to translate it into Greek so that they could read it. And when they did, they changed the meaning of Torah. Torah means teachings in Hebrew. But they translated it namos in Greek, which is the law. And that made a huge shift in the way that people perceived it. And you can see that the Pharisees wouldn't have believed what they believed without that shift in the meaning of the term. The teachings is much less offensive to me than the law. Yes. I think well, I think... When you give a lot of rules and regulations, you just make people rebellious. True? I mean, if you're just thinking of human nature, I'm thinking, then Paul's on to something. You give people 613 laws. What if I told you all today, you all have to obey all these 613 laws. Most of you would just leave. <laughs> you know, we're not doing that. But I bet a few would stay and go, I'll meet the challenge. I'll do it. <laughs> and that's what happened. Okay, the law includes not only the Ten Commandments, because a lot of times modern readers see the law and they think, okay, the Ten Commandments. But it's the dietary laws, the circumcision, cleanliness, cleansing, all 613. The law seen by Jews as rules for relationship to God, marking their own unique relationship with God, are reinterpreted as unattainable judgments. And Paul's interpretation of the law functions to reveal sinfulness. Again, radical reinterpretation. It's not unfounded within Phariseeism, but it wouldn't be a popular view. The law is only a custodian, is the word he used, given to keep us from being worse. So he puts it in kind of the metaphor of raising children again, that at first we raised you and then we got a governess, <laughs> got a custodian <laughs> to watch over you, and now you're adults and you should be able to follow the rules, and now we can have a real relationship. All right, what time am I supposed to stop? Okay, because I want to do part of Hebrews. I'm not going to be able to go into detail, but I need the Hebrews part to get to the case here. According to Paul, faith supersedes the law. All right, so let's talk about Hebrews for a second. Hebrews is so different from this that it's kind of astounding. This is an anonymous argument. That what's happened is, is these are Jewish Christians who are wanting to just go back to being Jewish. The Romans didn't persecute Jews on the whole. They did occasionally. There were times that they, were, they got in trouble and got thrown out of places, but it was usually because they were causing some sort of trouble in the streets. But Rome had policies toward Jews. They even acknowledged the Sabbath, and if you were in the army, the Roman army, and you were Jewish, you didn't have to fight on the Sabbath. They had already worked around Judaism to a large extent. So it was safer. Christianity was considered <coughs> well, it's easier to explain this in this way. Um, the basic function of Rome, Rome had two key concepts that were not exchangeable. One was pater familia, which means the father is in control of the family. And the other is pietas. How does the father show control? Through piety. To them, piety didn't mean piety just to the gods. It meant piety to everything. It was a respect. In fact, the left arrow of that is the mafia. Yes, what's the mafia all about? Respect and rule of the father. So it's sort of a shadow <laughs> image of something that was positive in Roman culture. Okay, so piety meant to show respect for the gods, show respect for the emperor, show respect for the laws and the regulations of my city, and to teach my children and my wife to respect me and the rules of society. So I have to control my own home, and I have to show the right respect to all branches of society. Christians didn't do that. They didn't worship the gods of society, so they were showing no respect. Is this making sense? Many of them questioned the emperor, and they didn't want to, uh, images of the emperor. They couldn't worship that. So they were considered unpious, which is an irony since Christianity almost steals that word for its own. So they were considered ungodly, unpious, and worst of all, disrespectful. And being from the South, 
wow, I understand that. And the way I was brought up is that you should shoot your foot off before you're rude to a guest, right? If your guest wants to burn your house down, you just go, here's a match. It's just the way that it is in the South. You always offer them tea, even if you hate them. (laughs) Doesn't matter if you hate them. You give them tea and you give them food and you meet their needs, doesn't matter. It's very much built into Southern culture. We had some people over yesterday and they didn't even introduce themselves and I'm just like, that is so rude. And to me, that was like, it's not the 11th commandment, it's the only commandment, don't be rude. If you just follow that, don't be rude to God, don't be rude to people, you pretty much got it, right? It's kind of the negative of love everybody. It's, you know, just don't be rude if you can't love them. I was amazed by that. I wanted to say, this is life 101, people. All right, so do we understand the Romans didn't like Christians because they were rude. They didn't, to them, they were lawbreakers. All right. So, the, le- the people in the letter are wanting to go back to Judaism. They want to go back and be Jews. Forget this Christianity thing. It's too high a cost. They're persecuting Christians. They're asking us if we're Christians. Let's just go back to the safe place. So it was written prior to the destruction of, J- of Jerusalem. All right. I'm going to skip through these pretty quickly here. But. So the way that the writer makes the case is he talks about the superiority of Jesus to the prophets. Who's better, the person prophesied or the prophet who told you about them? There you go, you've answered the question. Who's better, angels or the one who made the angels? There you go. Or whom the angels serve? Who's better, the person who gives the law or the person who gave the giver of the law the law? (laughs) So Jesus is superior to, to Moses And you have to think that the writer's only worried about this because these are Jewish Christians. The superiority of Christ's priesthood to the Levitical priests, he talks about Levitical priests, they would make sacrifices once a year, they go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus makes a sacrifice for all time and eternity in the real temple. He saw this temple as a shadow of the actual temple of God. He said, so he made his sacrifice in the real temple, so which is better, the one that does it for all time or the one that has to do it every year? Again, this is a different way of dealing with Judaism, isn't it? It's saying it's temporary. It's not exactly the custodial thing that Paul was putting it in. Superiority of Christ's sacrifice in the heavenly sanctuary, sacrifices over earth by Levitical priests. All right. I'm going to skip over some of these details. Okay. One of the things... Uh, that the writer uses our analogies. The builder of the house is greater than house. Would everybody agree with that? It's also a Kawa Homer. Melchizedek is another priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now let's go. Logical appeal? Nope. There we go. The main thing that the writer of Hebrews does is he allegorically reinterprets the, what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. It was, called, you know, it was the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, the Torah. Um, he reinterprets it as an allegory. We have to understand that people didn't think of this until a Greek philosopher named Philo, who was born shortly before Christ, 20 BCE, said that explanation of scripture passage, which is based on the supposition that the author, whether God or man, intended something other, alas, than what is literally expressed. Okay. This, again, is a radically different way to read the scriptures. The normal way would be to read it is you're reading history, and you're reading, when you're reading Exodus, this are, these are things that happened, and this is the history of the Jewish people. Yes, that's the normal way of reading it. Philo comes along and takes this Greek idea that everything can mean something else. In an allegory, well, if you've read like John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress or whatever, you know what they're like. God named Pilgrim meets somebody named Faith, and it's pretty obvious, <laughs> obvious kind of stuff. All right, so we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
all right, this is going into such detail that it's looking at that minor detail, really, of where the bodies were burnt of the sacrifices and reading it allegorically to say this is why Jesus was crucified in Golgotha outside of Jerusalem. That's a heavily allegorical reading of something. You could give other reasons why he was crucified there. One for one would be that's the normal place people got crucified. Or you could see it as, as allegorically related to this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. Again, he's talking to people who are being persecuted for being Christians. For here we have no lasting city. Again, there's an allegory, right? Jerusalem now is an allegory. It's only an earthly shadow of a heavenly Jerusalem. We seek a city which is to come, the new Jerusalem, the Messianic age. If you know anything about history, for a while there, the British thought they were the new Jerusalem. Well, you talk about a scary thought. <laughs> which meant it was their duty to take over the planet and to make them all Christians, and that was probably not a great plan either because we all know why they really wanted to take over the planet. Through him, let us then continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God that is fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Okay, so the writer is rereading the text as allegorically pointing to Christ. This was pretty common. If you read the speeches in Acts, Peter reads the Old Testament that way too. That when it says son, it referred to Jesus. So any passages about son, that must refer to Jesus. Or if they refer to a king to come, they refer to Jesus. And they go back and they find those passages. And, and um, the writer of, of what we now call Second Isaiah is mostly quoted. So when you find the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, it's heavily from Isaiah, from Psalms, places where they mention son and things like that. But they kind of ignore a lot of the other texts that doesn't have anything to do with that. All right, so the key rhetorical method of Hebrews, and I wish I could, I'll send this out to you, you can see some of the details, but is eternal versus temporal. Which is better, something that lasts forever or something that lasts only a while? We would all pick. If I could buy a car that would drive forever <laughs> or a house that would last forever, I'd certainly live in it. So, the Old Testament sacrificial system only functioned in, er in yearly terms. The Old Testament priests were human. The promises of the Hebrew Bible were shadows. So he sees, he's looking not at the laws, he's looking at the whole history as an allegory. The Hebrew Bible is not only history, but allegory. And Jesus' sacrifice, priesthood, and personhood are forever because he is God. But because he's human, he also sympathizes with us. All right, so the fancy thing again. It's like erasing the board, but cooler. All right, so here's what I was trying to say today, and the reason why I picked these two books is I think these two books, probably along with Romans, exemplify how Christianity defined itself as a unique religion. I think before these letters were written, Christianity was still a Jewish movement, and because of these letters, that was no longer possible. The Synoptic Gospels depict the movement as one of Jewish reform. Jesus speaks in the Pharisaic tradition of Hillel. So it's not necessarily in the Synoptic Gospels. It is kind of in the Gospel of John, but that was written later and it reflects a lot of these changes. By the time John was written, the, the Jews and the Christians had parted and the Jews had forbidden Christians from coming into the synagogue. So as I noted before, when I talked here before, John has some pretty anti-Jewish sentiment in it that the others don't have where they say the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribe, he says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, all the way through. So there's, there's already a separation. Disagreements in the early church led to a total separation. So the way, which became, you know, they called themselves the way, meaning the way to interpret Jewish scriptures. It's, it's, uh, it's a Jewish movement at first. Jewish law was radically reinterpreted by Paul and others as judgment rather than guidelines and Jewish relationship to God. Interpreted as impossible. Paul says that all fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Greek. The Jews of the time would never have said that. They said the, the law is what makes the relationship possible. If it were impossible, why would God give us those laws? There is a logic to what they're saying, isn't there? Who would give you impossible rules to follow? 
Jewish history was, and then in Hebrews, Jewish history was radically reinterpreted as an allegory pointing to Christ Jesus. So in order to do that, we ended up with Christianity and the separation with Judaism was pretty much completed. There you go. Thank you, Dr. Lloyd. Uh, a word about the PowerPoint graphics. I, Hard it's, to read. It's been my uh, privilege to be in Dr. Lloyd's class at Stark, Kent State Stark as a senior guest student. And I'm taking the course that he offers called Argumentative Prose. <laughs> and you're pretty much a pro at argument, actually. Well, my wife said I didn't need any more training in argument. <laughs> And I've given you a ton. But, well, yeah, we're going to get a question in. Just hold <laughs> them a second, Jerry. But about the middle of February, Dr. Lloyd perfected his use of the PowerPoint software, and we got all these new graphics, the fade-ins and the rotating screens. Pretty cool, aren't they? And they're, they're real cool, and, and, and he's using those with us. So and we've I seen them. That Semiotically, they mean something. So if it turns, it means I'm looking at something another way. Well, there if you go. If it flips over, it's a complete change. If it erases itself, that means I'm going to a completely different point. Sure. <laughs> well, we've, we're so gratified that you're willing to come and, and lead us with these discussions. Sure. And I will say this, having been in his class now for the whole semester, we've got a couple more class sessions, and then we're over for this semester. There is a, a wealth of information in, in the study of rhetoric and argument and logic. Uh, we've, we've branched out into the Far East and different forms of argument this semester. Uh, and there is also a little thread of, of religion that gets thrown into his <laughs> lectures as well. Uh, plus, what we've obviously seen here four weeks last year and four weeks this year, and I think it's safe to say we'll want to do this some more. So, thank you, Dr. Lloyd. Now, Jerry's got a question. Yeah. Uh, I'm still bugged by that first slide you put up about uh, Christ <laughs> is the here to slide. fulfill the law, yeah. and yet not one uh, pen or chip will be changed uh, in, uh, in the law until all things are accomplished. Okay, now, so I can buy the, the law will stay because we still have a Jewish remnant and they're obeying the laws. Right. Uh, and so, yes, there's still the law is still going to be obeyed by them. But what is the end until all is accomplished in the end? And that's what that's what has bugged the church for centuries. And no one has a really good answer. He didn't explain what he meant by that. And so the traditional two interpretations is his life was the fulfillment. And this is that goes along with Paul's idea, right, that the law ends. And that after that. It may still be obeyed by Jewish people, etc., but no one is saved through the law, according to what Paul is saying. So he would say that Jesus is the fulfillment, and that happened in his death and resurrection. Other reading of it would be that the law stands until the end of time, which also makes a whole lot of sense. It makes a huge amount of difference, though, let's say the controversy over the Ten Commandments that a lot of Christians say we should have the Ten Commandments posted in certain places or whatever. But if you go with what Paul is saying, it'd be like, well, why? We don't live under those anymore. We may live under their general principles, but now under Christ, you just do what the Spirit tells you to do. You don't have to have a rule or a law to make those kind of decisions, right? So you don't steal or hurt other people or covet their property simply because that's not what Christ would do. You don't do it because it's a rule. Am I making any sense? And you're not doing it to please God or to make brownie points. You're doing it because you're grateful for the relationship you have. Just like a lot of us, you know, uh, people stay faithful in marriage simply because they made vows, but also just because they love that person. And it's not about the law or the vows. It's just the relationship. And that's what I think the model of Christianity is supposed to be. So in that sense, the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore in the sense that they're, they're too specific, really. It's kind of related to the moral development idea that you go from doing th not doing things wrong because you're afraid to doing them because they're rules to doing them because you see them as right in a broader sense. 
they're things that are good for all humanity or good for your family or good for the country or whatever. You're making decisions on a different level than just legalistically. <laughs> yeah, there's occasionally a book coming out saying that, you know, eat the Hebrew diet or the Jewish diet or whatever. I don't know how much they hold water, but <laughs> you can have at it if you want to try to obey all, all 613 of them. Ha, <laughs> ha,